after the Pharisees saw Jesus successfully, well, really embarrassed the Sadducees concerning the resurrection, they weren't finished. You know, what's interesting is the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not get along. The Pharisees didn't believe in the resurrection, while the Sadducees did not. And there was a division or a sect among them. But on this occasion, as they come to challenge Jesus, they team up and they join forces. And Jesus now embarrasses their question about the resurrection to the Sadducees. So the Pharisees send somebody else. They sent a scribe. Scribes were copyists of the law. And therefore, they knew the very minute details of it. In fact, they had a reputation too. Many considered scribes to be authorities in the Torah or the Pentateuch or the first five books of the law or as the Sadducees referred to it is the, those books of Moses. And we're talking about Matthew, uh, we're talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They were considered to be ex, uh, experts. But in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 22, the Bible says that this man was a lawyer. I read a number of scholars that said that he was perhaps called a lawyer because he was well known for his interpretations of the law. J.W. McGarvey said this. He said a man like this would be suitable to ask the question because this would be a man that was qualified to judge the answer. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about lawyers, but lawyers in the days of Israel were not the same kind of lawyers and attorneys that we have today. Living under the law of Moses in, united both civil and religious matters. In fact, Israel is a theocratic state, or simply put, a theocracy. What in the world is that? Just a big fancy word for meaning this, that priest would rule in the name of God. So what you have is you have civil and religious put together in Israel. And that would be the case in this theocratic state with the exception of when Rome would intervene with its laws. And so really we have a combination of both secular and religious affairs and it was guided by God's word. Now, religion and politics therefore were one. So I like what Broadus says about this man. Picture this man. He was a scribe, a copyist of the law, not just some run-of-the-mill guy, though. This guy was considered an expert, called him a lawyer. Broadus said this, It might be appropriate to view this man that approaches Jesus as half lawyer and half theologian. Now, I have to say before we go any further, the questions that are asked of Jesus were questions that were trying to get the people to turn on Jesus. You know, the Pharisees hated Jesus. You know, there were things about Jesus they absolutely hated. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, bringing salvation to the world. In the last three years of his life, there were two things that they absolutely hated about Jesus. Number one is because he said, I am the Son of God. That's number one. Number two, because of the way he dealt with the Sabbath. So the Pharisees and all of the religious leaders, or Jews plural, they hated Jesus. So the questions were all about hate. But then this scribe comes, and it seems as though the questions are not quite so difficult, or the questions are not quite so harsh. It almost seems like he is coming with a friendly tone of it. 
Now, to appreciate the question, this man comes and he says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, I think it's important to remember a couple things about this. A little bit of history here to understand Judaism in the Lord's day. Among the Jews, there were rabbis. And rabbis, by the way, a rabbi was simply a scholar or a teacher. In fact, there were times when they called Jesus rabbi. Remember those passages? They said, Rabbi, tell us this. You know why? They were calling him a scholarly teacher. Well, rabbis would get together under the law of Moses, and they would discuss and they would debate what is the greatest commandments of all. In other words, let's come up with some kind of hierarchy, what the most important things of God are, all the way down to the least important things. And they would do that. Here's a question, though, right here. Teacher, which is the great commandment? What they would do is rabbis devoted themselves, as one scholar said, get this, to hair-splitting legalism and debating over what was the greatest. Lenski said this. Some think that each particular law is to be judged as to the severity of the penalty attached. For example, for example, the Sabbath. You know, what's very interesting about the Sabbath we were discussing this in a private Bible study just the other day. We were talking about the Sabbath and Jesus, the way Jesus handled the Sabbath. You know what Jesus did about the Sabbath? He did anything he wanted to do with the Sabbath. You know why? Because he was Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus said, I am Lord even of the Sabbath. He said, I'm greater than the Sabbath. So Jesus did whatever he wanted on the Sabbath. But some of the Jews thought, wait a minute, the greatest commandments are the Sabbath because the severity of the penalty of not keeping it. And there would be discussions about that. Still others, though, would say this. Circumcision was greater. Fasting, tithing, or even ceremonial washings, they were more important. Now, I love what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is going to address the debate and he's going to show that all of God's laws are important, especially those dealing with mercy and justice. Look at this passage here. Matthew 23 and 23. He says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and he calls them hypocrites. He said, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law? Jesus said you neglected justice, you neglected mercy, and you neglected faith. Now he wasn't saying you should have just done those and only those. He said you should have done it all. In fact, you have neglected the weightier matters. What you should have done is you should have taken heed to justice, mercy, and faith without leaving the others undone. So in the great debate among rabbis, under the great debate of what was the most important and all that, Jesus told them in Matthew 23, it's all important. All of it is. You should have kept it all. Now, is there a command that pleases God more than others? Is there such a command? You know, really, I don't think we can answer that question with a yes or no. I think it really has to do with motive. In other words, the motive of an individual asking the question determines whether it is a legitimate question or not. 
consider the following. If a person is attempting to limit obedience based upon a hierarchy, in other words, what is the minimum that's required of me, and I'll just do the, what's really required and nothing else, there's a problem in your spiritual life. You know what that's called? It's called the God-in-the-box syndrome. In other words, it's called what is required, what do I really have to do? Do you know when somebody actually says those words, what do I have to do? Even the mindset is not right. Even the mindset. If a person wants to ask for what is required to do the bare minimum, there's something wrong with his spiritual life. So it does come down to motive. However, if a person asks a question, this question, over what's required for the purpose of understanding God's overall will so that they can serve him better, then the question is legitimate. It is profitable and it is pure. All right, let's go back to the law of Moses. Let's go back to the days of the scribes. The scribes, by the way, have come up with 613 separate laws. Of the 613, 248 were positive and 365 representing every day of the year, 365 were negative. All kinds of stuff. And by the way, under Jewish rabbinic tradition, under the codification of rabbinic tradition, there were far more things that they came up with than God ever said. They came up with all manner of things. In fact, you know when the Bible talks about on the Sabbath, you couldn't work on the Sabbath? Couldn't do any servile work on the Sabbath? You know what they did? The Jews came up with 39 other things that you couldn't do specifically on the Sabbath under the codification of rabbinic tradition. And one of which is you couldn't carry your bed. And that's why Jesus, when he healed that man, he took a shot right at their rabbinic tradition. And he said, take up thy bed and walk. All they had all manner of laws, separate laws, all kinds of things. John MacArthur said this. He said the 613 laws were because, interesting, there are 613 separate individual letters in the Hebrew text in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. So they came up with 613 specific laws. Let's go to Mark's account. Let's go to Mark's account in chapter 12 and verse 29. Here Jesus is going to quote something that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 4 and 5. You know, the Lord was just so brilliant. This was a great confession of their faith. In fact, what I'm going to show you was quoted by Jews every morning and every evening. And even today, I read this last week, pious Jews even today, what Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, they cite themselves every day in the morning and also in the evening, even pious Jews today. Jesus is going to answer the question, but he's going to also preach a little sermon here. And here it goes. He said this. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And by the way, this is called, this confession is called the Shema. And what the Jews would do is they would cite these words every morning and every evening. It is called the Shema because, it, because of the word here. In other words, in Hebrew, the Shema, because it says, Hear, O Israel. 
Very important words to the Jews. Now, it was recited. You know what they believed? They believed that if a Jew would recite the Shema twice a day, it would be passport. It was their literal passport into paradise where Abraham's bosom is described in Luke 16. In other words, they thought, listen, this is our passport. They recited it twice a day. Now, there's more. This Shema here in this passage in Deuteronomy was one of four passages that were copied and they were put on small pieces of parchment and placed in phylacteries. Now, you've heard, you've heard us talk about phylacteries. Remember when Jesus was criticizing them and condemning them? He said, you broaden your phylacteries and the purpose was to be seen of men. What they would do is, this is really interesting, I think. They would take parchments, little parchments, and they would write passages of Scripture, four different passages. That was one. You know what they would do? The men would take the parchments and put it in a phylactery. A phylactery is a pouch. John MacArthur said, it's like a little box. And you know what they would do? They would bind the box on the left arm, the men would at the time of prayer. And you know what else they would do? They'd bind it on the forehead. They'd walk around like a bunch of box heads with it on their forehead. And I want you to get this picture, please. Jesus is speaking to Pharisees that no doubt stood before him with the boxes on their head. They missed the whole point. You ever wonder why they did that? You ever wonder why they did that? Why did they bind those phylacteries? Well, they did it because of their literal interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 18. In Deuteronomy 11 and 18, the Bible says, Therefore, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. And what? And bind them as a sign on your hand, left arm, time of prayer for the men, and they shall be as frontless, frontlets between your eyes. Put it on the forehead. You know what that really means? That really means what it means to us too. When the Bible talks about in the Old Testament about raising your children, talks about doing this, talks about binding the word of God on their foreheads as frontlets between their eyes or before their eyes. You know what that means? That is very simple. It simply means when you bind it on your hand, it is a symbolic gesture, not literally. What you're saying is, what the Word of God is saying is, everything you do with your hands, your deeds, your actions, have to be with scriptures in mind. And everything that you see, you view through the eye of scripture when you make all your decisions. That's what that means. You know, perception is, some people say perception is reality. That's not true. It is, sort of, but let me modify it. Perception is your reality. So what your perception is, is your reality. Everybody can have all manner of perceptions, right? Your reality. So what do you got to do? What do we have to do to have the right reality? We have to bind the word of God on our foreheads, as it were, and let the word of God be as frontlets between our eyes and make our decisions with the scriptures in mind. 
Well, they understood the passages. They understood and they agreed with what Jesus quoted, obviously. But the Pharisees overlooked the essence of the passage. They failed to understand the application of it. No doubt, no wonder why Jesus says about the Pharisees, what they say, do it. Why? They know the law. But what they do, do not do that because they say and they do not. Same as here. They knew the passage, probably quoted verbatim every single time, probably standing there with eloquent speech and all of that and masterfully quote the word of God and miss the whole, excuse me, and miss the whole point. You know what the point was they missed? The essence of the passage, which was this. True inner commitment to God is not mindless formalism of dry tradition under the old law. It's about a heart that's in tune with its creator. Now, here's the answer to the scribes. In verse 30 of Mark chapter 12, here's the answer. So the question was, what's the first commandment? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Now, interesting about the word love, and I realize that sometimes people have a misunderstanding about love, and sometimes we think love is just what you feel. This word love doesn't even mean that at all. This word love actually refers to an act of will that is born, get this, not a feeling, of intelligence and purpose. In other words, the love that you have for God is a choice. And it's a choice that is based on intelligence and purpose. And it's an act of will, not an act of feeling. Just a little side note. This is free. A little side note. You know when people talk about falling in love and they can't really help it. They just fell in love. And then one day they break up. I just fell out of love. I haven't preached on that sermon in about 15 years but I'll tell you that's really crazy when you think about that falling in falling out just fell right in fell out do you know that love is a choice it always is a choice person might have a, a feeling of infatuation but that's not love real love that you need for the rest of your life in your relationships in your marriage in your spiritual life it is the kind of love that is an act of will and it's when I say, I choose to love you for the rest of my life. I choose that. You say that to your spouse. You say that to your God. They fail to understand the concept of that. Jesus says, here's the command. Here it is. You got to love your God with all your heart, will, and soul. Now, interesting, obviously, this is agape love. And agape love can truly be described, only agape love can truly be described by the phrases heart, soul, and mind. Let's talk about what heart means. Now, I know we, we speak of the heart often, and we should. But heart in this passage means this. What is it? What is heart? Heart is the main source of man's thoughts, his words, and his deeds. It is one's inner personal being. It is the center of our physical, emotional, and spiritual life. It is even the center of our personality. That's Terry Osborne. If I talk about his heart. That's it. That's your personality. That's what you are. 
You've heard me say you are what you are. Sometimes it sounds harsh, but it really is. It really is true. No doubt that's what Jesus meant when he said where your treasure is, that's where your heart will also be. Main source of man's thoughts is the heart. All right. The center of one's spirituality and personality. It's not left to emotions or chance. It's the kind of love that has a readiness to do anything that God requires. That's what it means to love God with all your heart. What about your soul? You know, the word soul there, Lenski said, refers to the life that animates the body. Now, usually in scripture, the word soul refers to a combination of spirit and body or one's life. So to love God with all one's soul means this. Let me just sum it up like this. It means this. Be ready to sacrifice your life for God if faithfulness to God demands it. That's what that means. That's how you love God with all your soul. And I'm so thankful and so glad that Alan Bailey preached it right. Not because I preached it that way, but because it is right. In Revelation 1 and 10, when Jesus said, But be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. It means not only, it includes, but not only until your life is over, or all of your life until you die, but it actually means even if it means your death. Jesus was writing to people that were being persecuted so harshly and badly that some of them were going to lose their life. You know what Jesus said? You be faithful even if it cost you your life. You know what that is? That's loving God with all your soul. You're going to do anything if you have to, if faithfulness requires it. All right, now wait a minute now. I'm trying to put this together in my head. Talking about the heart. We know the heart's not feeling. We know the heart has something to do with your thinking, your mind. So why is mind listed separately? What's mind mean? What does it mean with all of your mind? Well, remember this. The heart is the source of man's thoughts. The mind is not only the seat of intellectual life, but it's also the seat of our disposition and our attitude. Don't you see they go together? Because this, your attitude, is the aroma of your heart, which is your inner being. It is the aroma of your inner being. They go together. Have you ever stopped to consider how important your attitude is? I'm going to tell you something. Attitude is so important. Did you know this? Now, I'm going to tell you, one of the hardest things in the world to beat is cancer. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. And some people succumb to it and don't, and, and don't make it. It's a hard, hard battle. Fortunately, they've taken great strides, and people have, are beating it today, and that's wonderful. I'm very thankful that I happen to be the recipient of that good stuff. But I'm going to tell you something. When you talk about things in life, about attitude, did you know that your attitude, even though you're taking the medicine, even though you're praying to God and all the things involved, it has been proven that a person with a positive attitude has a far better chance to beat that terrible disease than if they have a rotten one. In other words, if you got a rotten one, it can cost you your life. Can you imagine having a rotten spiritual attitude? What's that going to do? It's going to ruin your spiritual life. And the way you have to do and what you got to do 
You got to get rid of your rotten attitude. I'm saying you as in general, not talking about anybody in particular. You got to get rid of your rotten spiritual attitude so you don't die spiritually. Attitude's everything. You know what it is? It's the mind. Again, it's a choice, and it is a reflection of our inner being. So, partial dedication, folks, is no dedication at all. In these passages, we find this, that we are to love God with all of our faculties. Strength, by the way, is spiritual strength, not physical strength. Spiritual strength. And incidentally, did you know that the greatest act of strength is submission? I'm going to tell you, people don't like to do this in the world. They don't like to submit to anything. They want to be strong on the outside and determine what they're going to do and who they're going to obey and all that. But I'm going to tell you right now, the greatest act of strength is willful submission. Now, that's every Christian to God. Be ever stopped to consider how great and how strong our Christian wives are when they have made the choice to willfully submit to their husbands as an act of strength. Pretty amazing. But that's every Christian too, folks. You know what the Lord's saying here? You got to love God with all your faculties. What are they? Your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. With all of that. Not partial dedication. Mark 12 and 30. This is the first commandment. Jesus sums up what he said. He sums up the answer to the question. He said, this is the first commandment. But in response to the scribe's question of what's the first or the greatest, Jesus now is going to add something. I love this. Jesus is now going to add something. He's going to preach another sermon. He's going to bring it on down. It's going to make so much sense. You've heard me say this before. It is true that some of the things that Jesus preached were some of the most profound things in all of the Bible. And yet, he being the master, he could preach it in such a way that was so simple that even a child could understand. You know what? Jesus says about loving God, they got it. Then he said, this is the first commandment, they got it. But you know what else? Now he's going to go to Leviticus 19 and 18. And this is what he's going to say. It's found in verse 31 of Mark 12. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do, do, you, do you see that? You should love your neighbor as yourself. You know what that means? That means you have to love yourself. You know what that means? Hating yourself is a sin. When you come into the world, did you not know you've been given the quality of loving yourself? And if I'm not telling the truth right here, then why did he say you got to love your neighbor as yourself if it's all right to hate yourself? And we know we can't hate. I want to add something else, too. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are, and I don't care what your background is. You've made mistakes, and so have I. And sometimes our mistakes shame us. Okay. Okay. Make it right and be forgiven. Okay. If God can forgive you like it never happened, 
Why can't we forgive ourselves? We don't hate ourselves, folks. We love ourselves. That is scriptural. In fact, Jesus says in this passage, in this commandment from Leviticus, Jesus is saying that the standard in which you measure love for your neighbor is the same one that's on par with loving yourself. Again, if you can hate yourself, you can hate your neighbor. Can't do it. Now, here's kind of the problem, though. You might wonder, well, who's my neighbor? You remember when Jesus dealt with the lawyer one time? I'm not going to go very deep into this, but really quickly. He dealt with the lawyer one time. And Jesus tells the lawyer that there was a man that fell among thieves on the Jericho Road. We know the whole thing. All right, fast forward. A priest went by and passed on the other side. A worshiper of God. He did nothing. A Levite, a worker in the temple. You know what he did? He came over, took a look, and then he passed by on the other side. But then there was a man, and he didn't know this man at all. He was a Samaritan. And the Jews looked down upon the Samaritans, the combination of a Jew and a Gentile. They hated their guts. He comes on the scene. He sees this man. He fixes his wounds. He puts him on his beast. He takes him to the inn. He tells the head of the inn there. He tells the man, here, here's money right here out of my pouch. And if it's not enough to cover his expenses while he recovers and recuperates, when I come back, I'll pay it. Jesus turns to the lawyer, much like this guy right here. He turns to the lawyer and he said, let me ask you this. Because the man had said, well, who's my neighbor? Again, God in the box. Give me the bare minimum. I'm going to love him, but I don't have to love him. So if I don't have to love him, I'm not. Jesus says, let me ask you this. Which one was neighborly? To the man. And the lawyer said, the one that showed him mercy. The definition of neighbor in the dictionary, you know what it is? A nigh dweller, meaning you, you live next to somebody. If I live next to Terry, Terry's my neighbor. That's not the word neighbor here, folks. The word neighbor here is referring to anybody, anybody who providentially is brought your way. And we have to treat them with love as we love ourself. Now, upon reflection, one observes this. McMillan said this. One observes that the first commandment, in fact, includes the second. Because you can't love God without loving your fellow man. They go hand in hand. In fact, these two passages that Jesus quotes are actually the essence of the two tables of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. For example... The first four commandments regulate man's relationship to God. In fact, they're a practical summary of what it means to love God. That's the first four commandments. The last six of the Ten Commandments regulates man's relationship to his fellow man. In other words, a practical summary of what it means to love your neighbor. Jesus adds this. He said, here's your answer. Here's the first commandment. Here's the great commandment in the law. I'm going to add this, though. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. You know why? They go hand in hand. You know why? They're both the same. One includes the other. In fact, Jesus said this. There is no other commandment greater than these. Mark chapter 12 
32 and 33. Here's the response. I'm almost finished. So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, you know what Jesus said after this? He said in Mark 12 and 34, Jesus saw that he answered wisely. Now, the word wisely means sensibly or in, uh, intelligently. When Jesus saw that the man answered intelligently in that response to Jesus, he was showing spiritual insight and intelligence by seeing that moral responsibilities were far more important than ceremonial observances of the old law. Again, remember that? Remember the weightier matters. They neglected the weightier matters. They did all, oh man, they did all kinds of stuff. They neglected the weightier matters. And Jesus says this. He says to this man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Remember in a theocracy, by the way, which is a system of government where a priest ruled in the name of God, under the, uh, under the old law in this theocracy, people that were described as being far off, they were either exiled Jews, according to Isaiah 57, or they were Gentiles. So you could be in proximity, you could be distant from the kingdom, I guess you could say, and it would be described in miles or ceremonial stuff, observances. But not the new kingdom. Don't you see? The new kingdom is all about, and the distance is not measured by miles, it's measured by your spiritual condition. Jesus says that in this manner, this man answered wisely, intellectually, intelligently, and Jesus says, you're not that far away. You're not that far away. In other words, intellectually, you're qualified or almost qualified to, for admission to the kingdom. And then in verse 34, at the end of the verse, but after that, no one dared question him. Remember, the question seems, as I mentioned a little bit ago, the question of the scribe seems kind of friendly. But listen, there's no friendliness going on here at all. None at all. You know, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, all those that hated Jesus, remember how many people there loved Jesus, at least of, as of then. The multitudes and, the, and all of that that would turn on Jesus later. They loved Jesus. So you know what the religious leaders said we got to do? We've got to try to turn the people against Jesus because we want to kill him. So it sounds as though it's kind of nice, polite, friendly questioning from the scribe, but none of it was friendly. It was captious. It was hostile with the intention of ensnaring Jesus to destroy his credibility with the multitudes. And after Jesus masterfully answers everyone and all backfired. He answered the Pharisees. He answered the Herodians. He answered the Sadducees. And now just straightened out the scribe. And the Bible says this. Oh, after all that, they didn't ask him another thing. Have you ever heard the phrase or the term or 
this little rule of thumb when a, a lawyer in a court of law, I've heard this my whole life, a lawyer is never supposed to ask a question that he doesn't already know the answer. So if you are, you got somebody on the stand, you ask them a question, you don't want to look foolish and prove the other guy's case, so you better know what the answer is. Can you imagine how it was with Jesus? You got the Pharisees, you got the Herodians, you got the Sadducees, you got the scribes, you got a man that was a lawyer. They think they got him dead to rights. He answers every one of them, and you know what happened? They said, oh, we better not ask him another thing. We just took a whipping. We better not ask him one more thing. But in closing, the Lord's not done. He answered the question, and then now he's going to ask a question. He says to them, he says, what do you think of Christ? He said, whose son is he? You know what they said? Oh, he's the son of David. You know, the son of David was a term for the Messiah. The Jews believed in a Messiah. They just rejected the one that they got. They rejected the one that they got. They knew about the word Christ, the Christ. They knew about the word Messiah. They knew all about that. They knew about son of David. They knew what that represented. They just recognized or didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus asked them this. What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, oh, he's the son of David. And then Jesus said this. How could David, being in spirit, meaning dead, call his son Lord? Can't you just see him stand there like penguins just staring? Saying nothing. It says they couldn't even answer him. Jesus just kind of got a little shot in there at the end. This is what happened on this Tuesday in the day of questions. Now the questions are over with, but I'll tell you what, the Lord's not done. Oh, there's a sermon coming. There is a sermon coming. And he's going to rebuke them. And I'll tell you, you could just see the hostile mobs turning on him little by little, little by little, as we press toward Friday. And remember this, Tuesday, there's more written and described and put down and recorded on Tuesday than any other day except for Friday in the last week in the life of Jesus. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.